theyeshiva.net. If you go to the yeshiva.net and you go to Basics of Amuna, you put in the words Basics of Amuna, or there's a tab on the right, Basics of Amuna, you'll find all the 11 first lectures. And uh, more or less, I don't want to repeat those lectures because they're available, they're archived, everybody could listen to them and watch them. I would like to explore new issues. In the first lecture of Basics of Amuna, which we did last week again, so it's number one over there, Number one and two deals with if faith contradicts reason. If Judaism is afraid of questions, how do we deal with questions? Do we embrace questions? Do we run away from questions? Does faith mean that we are scared to ask questions? That was number one and number two. Number three dealt with how Emunah translates into self-esteem. How do you perceive yourself, your identity based on Emunah? I would say in our generation, most people don't have a problem with faith in God. Most people don't have a problem with belief in God. But many people have a problem with believing in themselves. But real faith in God, if it denies belief in yourself, it's not faith in God, it's faith in idolatry. So that was number three. Number four we dealt with, is there proof that God exists, that Hashem exists? And how do we even begin to define God? Now that I have to say we still have to come back to because that's a big one. And although we began in class number four, we're going to do that again because of a lot of questions. Number, I'm sorry, that was number five. Number four, <laughs> number four, you're a bucky, no, you should correct me. Number four, we dealt with what's this whole idea of Torah and mitzvahs, reward and punishment. Why would a good God want to limit so many people's lives with 613 steps to recovery? And so many threats of Gehenim and the Olam Haba and Gan Eden. If you do it, if you don't do it, that was number four. Number five was proof of God's existence. Number six was, is there proof that Torah is min HaShemayim? Can it be rationally proven that Torah is from heaven or it's just a blind faith? And all religions believe that their religion comes from God. Is there any rational basis for it? Number seven and number eight is, who gave the rabbis all their power? What's this whole concept called Torah Shabal Peh? Where did that come from? And why should anybody live their lives by it? And what is its power? What is its meaning? What is its structure? Who decides it? How did it develop? What is its authority? What is its validity? Number nine was why do bad things happen to good people? Where is God when it hurts? How do you understand so much suffering and pain in the world? Number 10 was questions and answers that people asked, just random questions and answers. And number 11 was why did Jews reject Christianity and Islam? So those are the 11 classes that are available on Basics of Amuna at the yeshiva.net. And everybody is welcome to go into it or to get a CD of it or to send it to your friends, etc. And it deals with those questions at least on some level. None of the topics are naturally exhausted or completely explored by nature of topics that are very heavy and loaded and, and deep and profound and touch on infinite questions, but at least we try to uh, touch the surface and excavate at least a little bit a tip of the iceberg 
of these uh, fantastic topics. Tonight, in number 12, Basics of Amunah, I'm going to address three questions that came in, which I'm going to read. I have, I grew up in a very, very religious community from a very early age, but now it's much stronger. I have a very, very hard time with the concept that Jews are the chosen people. We are Am HaNifcher. How can the belief that the Jews are the chosen people be explained without seeming racists? Racist. To suggest that as Jews we are somehow closer to God than all other nations smacks of arrogance, elitism, racial prejudice, and only produces anti-Semitism and creates so many problems. Isn't it racist to believe you're special just because you're Jewish? How is that any different from the Nazi belief in the superiority of the Aryan race, for example? And Jews believe that they're superior. Good question. Another question. This concept that the Jews are the chosen people gives me migraine headaches. I want to tell God, why don't you choose somebody else? Who needs this choice? Why do we need this? I don't want it. Don't choose me. Could you unchoose me? Is there a way that I should unchoose myself from being chosen by you? I don't need your honey and I don't need your bite. I don't want to be chosen. Okay, my dear. Number three. I have grown up in my community with a certain perspective on non-Jews. It bothers me very much. What they told me about non-Jews, is it true? The truth is they also speak like this about other Jews that don't fit into their community. That's a good observation. What does Judaism really believe about non-Jews? What should our relationship with non-Jews be? I grew up with this conception that the Jews are like the only ones that exist and nobody else exists. It seems from your classes that you have a different perspective. Are you part of a different religion? Are you part of my religion? Which is rooted in Torah? <laughs> That's interesting. What's, uh, what does Judaism really have to say about this? Okay, wonderful, really wonderful questions. Question number three is going to probably have to be another sheer. I don't think I'll get to it. What does Judaism really believe about our relationship with non-Jews and about non-Jews and our responsibility, our duty in our relationship and our understanding of the entire world outside of the Jewish people? Actually, I think it's quite a vital topic, especially in today's day and age, when we're living in very uh, interesting times in terms of relations between Jews and Gentiles, never mind what has happened in the White House over the last, over the last few months. What I'm going to address this evening at least start addressing is the concept that the Jews are the chosen people. Am hanifcher, bocher Hashem. God chose you. There's no question that today CP is not PC. Chosen people is not politically correct. Jews especially are allergic to the concept of chosen people. Certain types of Jews, especially, I speak to many different communities, and this topic is a very, very sensitive one. For some Jews, to call them the chosen people is a horrible insult. For this reason, Jews are very sensitive to being defined as racists, as elitists, as people who are insensitive to other people. 
And for many Jews, the term chosen people, just as this person wrote, it smacks of of arrogance and, and lack of respect and lack of sensitivity. We're chosen and everybody else is what? Garbage, chopped liver, worthless, meaningless. Is this really what Yiddishkeit believes? Like so many basics of Yiddishkeit, many of us make a lot of mistakes about them. And we really lack some fundamental understanding of what Judaism teaches. We are very good at the details. We have become very good at chumras and hidurim. We have become experts in how long the hadas should be, how large the matzah has to be for a kazayas, and how long or short is kadei achilas pras for the kairich and the matzah. All important and significant. We have become experts on how to find worms and broccoli and lettuce and to figure out if there are insects in our water. All important, vital, necessary, and significant. And yet, the fundamental underlying basis of all of Judaism, often many people are completely clueless about. They can't have a conversation about it for more than three, four minutes. All they'll tell you is, this is what they told me. And this is sad and it's pathetic. Especially for an Am Chacham V'Navin, for an intelligent people. Especially in a generation when there are hundreds of thousands of young men and women who need to understand more, who are eager to understand. And as I said last week, just to tell them, this is what we say, what we believe, it doesn't cut it. Here is another example. Jews are the chosen people, the Jewish people. What is this thing called the Jewish people? I don't want to be chosen. What does this even mean with choosing? Somebody else wrote an email, I didn't copy it here. Why would God discriminate against other people? Why would a good God discriminate against other people? Why choose Jews? Why not choose everybody? Another great question. So let's begin the conversation. First of all, in common culture, and I'm talking about secular culture today, there is a certain erroneous belief. And that is that if we believe that everybody is equal... It helps society. Because for thousands of years, humanity suffered from racism. What is racism? Racism is the belief that because you don't belong to my race, you are somehow less significant than me. I could respect you less because you're not part of my group, my tribe, my family, my race. That, of course, produced tragic and horrific consequences. How do you eliminate racism? It seems that the best way to eliminate racism is to deny that there are any differences, any fundamental differences. There are external differences that you can't deny, but fundamental differences we eliminate. Everybody is equal, completely equal. When somebody now says Jews are the chosen people, it right away triggers, especially among Jews, a terrible negative feeling. Are we going back to the dark ages where some people are seen as fundamentally different than other people? So the notion is very understandable. In many ways, it's even respectful. It comes from a profound sensitivity to the notions of equality, of peace, of compassion, of empathy, of all-inclusiveness. And who more than the Jews suffered from being denigrated, persecuted, hunted down, and murdered only because they were different, 
only because they had Jewish blood flowing in their sinews, only because they practiced their own religion, only because they were loyal to their own God. So if there's any, ever a nation that is so sensitive to this, it's the Jews, and of course, especially after what happened in the last generation during the Second World War, the Holocaust. And that's why today, in today's day, without a proper understanding and perspective of what the concept of Am HaNifcher is, these are good questions, legitimate questions, and I would say even, as I said, important questions, because they're coming from a very, uh, I think, genuine place of people who want to see a, a, an integrated world, a euphoric world, or what we would call a messianic world, a world where everybody gets along, or in the immortal words of one fine Gentile in the West Coast, can't we all just get along? But the truth is, let's take it one step deeper. The idea that in order to create a beautiful world, everybody has to be the same, and there are no fundamental differences, is really a mistake. It sounds good, and it looks good, but it eclipses a very two pro- powerful problems. I'll give an example. Let's say a chassan and a kala, a, a groom and a bride, a husband and a wife get married, a, a young man and a young woman get married, and they tell each other, as they often say, we're mamish equal. We're like, we're like best friends who, we, we should have been the same person. I mean, we're like, we see everything the same way. We have the same tastes. We, we look at everything from the same perspective. We could finish each other's sentences. We almost maybe even look alike. Uh, we're, we're, we're identical. We're, we're twins. We're literally twins. Isn't that amazing? It's awesome. It's beautiful. There's only one issue. <laughs> And the issue is usually, when you live together for a while, you're going to see that you're not twins. In fact, you're quite different. In fact, you may even realize that in some areas, you're opposites from each other. If you create as the premise of unity, the fact that we're identical, we're not different, it's great as long as we believe we're identical. But what if that is superficial? What if that's shitchizdik? It's not deep. And one day, the deep personality differences emerge. Can we still get along? Real unity does not mean that we're the same. Real unity means we're different. And yet our differences don't cause division. Our differences actually invite a deeper unity. Why? Because our division, instead of being a source of fragmentation, our division actually invites a deeper unity because it makes us realize that there's something you contribute to life that I don't have, and there's something I contribute to life that you don't have. That is a profound unity. That is a lasting unity. That is an enduring unity. We're not the same. Our differences may emerge, and yet from our differences, mature people can learn to become even more united despite their differences, and even deeper through their differences. That's point number one. Point number two. If we claim that we're equal, we actually are doing something unjust. Because what if there's something that I have that you don't have? And by not allowing us to acknowledge that maybe we're not equal, I never can get from you what I really need from you because I don't have it on my own. And you could never get from me what you really need from me because you don't have it on your own. 
by God forbid not mentioning the fact that there are essential differences, we also harm and we uh, damp, we uh, obstruct, we deprive the person who needs to get something from the other person of getting it because you're equal. No, there are differences. And now each one could be in one area a mashpia, a giver, and in another area a makabal, a recipient. The simple example for this would be the limbs of a body. You don't want the limbs of the body to be equal. The heart tells the brain, stop being so different. And the brain says, okay, what do you want me to do? Be just like me. And I want the nose and the eyes and the arms and the legs and the kidneys and the pancreas and the liver all to be identical. The result of that wonderful unity is Yisgadal v'Yisgadash, you could call him the Hevra Kadisha. The power of a living organism depends on diversity. Every limb has its unique functionality and purpose, and yet each one understands that it's part of a larger organism, and it's only by each one contributing its unique individual contributions that you can create the miracle that we call Chayim, that we call life. And each limb could contribute, each organ can contribute to life that which only it can contribute and the other ones cannot. That is a much more sophisticated, a much more enduring, a much more profound unity. In a relationship that would be, we're not the same, and yet that is what makes this relationship meaningful. We have things that were the same, and we have many things that were different, and yet we learn that there's a commonality that we both contribute to, and it's our differences that can actually enrich our unity rather than weaken it. Take children in a family, and this is something that we often deal with. What do you think about a father or a mother telling one of the boys, or one of the girls, Why can't you just be like your brother? Why can't you just be like your sister? They get a hundred. Why can't you get a hundred? We all understand that that's extremely disrespectful and insensitive. I can't be like my brother. I am I. Instead of highlighting and accentuating your unique gifts, your unique contributions, learning from your brother, learning from your sister, but not emulating them, to put people in the same dish and say, you're equal, you're not. On the contrary, you have strengths that he doesn't have. She has strengths that you don't have. The message, I think, is quite clear. The problem is not differences. That's not the problem. Differences are reality. The problem is how we view our differences. You see, this is the issue. Let's say I discover that I am different than you, and I have strengths that you don't have, and you have strengths that I don't have. What do I do with those strengths? What do I do with those differences? How do I treat the fact that I have something that you don't have? Do I use that as an opportunity to exploit you? To manipulate you? To cheat you? To deceive you? To use you? Or on the contrary, I see it as an opportunity, a duty, and a privilege to actually help you. Nobody's going to say, if there's a special child a child who has special needs, that they have equal capabilities and skills and opportunities like other children. They don't. To make believe they do would be unjust and very non-compassionate. Why? Because then you can't offer them the help they need 
due to their limitations. If you can't acknowledge their weakness, as some people do, you want to hide their weakness, you can't offer them the help. Now with special children, we all understand this. Sometimes with other children, they have certain weaknesses, but we're not allowed to acknowledge it. Because everything sometimes has to be, sometimes has to be covered up. So we can't give them what they need. Because we have to believe that they're perfect. But if you can't acknowledge that this child or this human being has needs, you're depriving them from the ability of getting those needs and being helped and assisted in their own growth by somebody who was blessed and privileged to be able to help them. That would be horribly insensitive. The question is not if the special needs children is di- child is different. Of course he's different. How do I look at that difference? Do I look at this child and say, huh, let me manipulate him? Let me expose him? Let me use him? Let me denigrate him? Let me look down at him? Or do I look at it as a privilege that I was blessed with certain skills and I could be here to enhance him? This is a critical component that we can all understand. Now let's speak about the Jewish people. This is the first premise you have to understand. When we speak about Jews being chosen, what does it mean Jews being chosen? First and foremost, does it mean God chose you and therefore you could manipulate the whole world? The kens bagamvenen, bagazlenen, bashaknen, baratzchenen. The kens an abehema, a terrorist, whatever, a dover acher, because you're the chosen people. That's the message. Everyone who's not you could be mistreated, could be abused, could certainly be disrespected and denigrated. Or was the message the exact opposite? You were chosen to be ambassadors of love, ambassadors of light, ambassadors of hope. People who would carry the flag of morality, of ethics, of respect, of sensitivity. To reveal that every human being was created with Salam Alakim in the image of God. They say a story that the Kleisenberger Rebbe, Zechrena Levracher, Bikusil Yehuda Halberstam, when the Germans took over Kleisenberg in Romania, it was in 1944. So they took the Jews to the center of town and they paraded the Kleisenberger Rebbe. The Nazis were obsessed with the rabbiners, with the hyped rabbiners, with the chief rabbis, with rabbis. Uh, they were sp- uniquely selected for derision and, and denigration and torture. And they paraded him around town in a very embarrassing fashion, simply to humiliate him and his community. This was in Kloisenberg in 1944. At some point, the SS uh, commander who was parading him he was schlepping him, he was schlepping the Kleisenberg Rebbe by his beard. Schlepping him by his beard. He says, do you, in, in German, he says, do you believe that the Jews are the chosen people? So the Kleisenberg Rebbe says, yes. So he took the butt of his rifle and he knocked it on over his head. Over his head and he fell to the ground and he started to gushing, gushing blood that was coming from his head. And he looks at him and he says, and now you still believe that the Jews are the chosen people? So he said, yeah. So he began kicking him with all of his might. And he was a pretty uh, frail man. He was kicking him and kicking him. The Jews thought he would perish on the spot. He was being beaten on the ground, shoved and kicked. He was now bleeding, gushing blood from his entire body. And the man says, and now do you still believe that the Jews are the chosen people? And he nods, yes. So this SS commander says, I don't understand you. 
Look where you are and look where I am. How could you call yourself the chosen people? And he looked up at him and he said these words. As long as we are not doing the beating, as long as we are not murdering, gazing, beating, torturing, burning innocent men, women and children, we are still the chosen people. That's perspective. So to put it differently, you could say that the Jews were chosen in many ways to reveal that every person was chosen in his or her own way by a creator who created that person in his image to fulfill the divine mission that this human being has and really everything in the world, everything in the world has. So when... I feel that I have distinct qualities. There's something distinct about me. And that means I have no room for others. I'm greater than everybody else. I can manipulate everybody else. I have no respect for anybody else. I don't listen to anybody else's opinion. That is a chosenness that is cursed. That is a chosenness that causes you to become less than chosen. But when you appreciate a unique quality that you have, that has some extraordinary blessings to it, and you see it as an opportunity, as a privilege, as a duty duty to share with others, to help others, to elevate others, then your chosenness becomes a source of blessing for the world, a source of blessing for humanity. And to deny that doesn't create real unity, because when that emerges, it will create division if it's not dealt with. And furthermore, as I said, point two, it deprives people of what they can get from you. The person who wrote me the letter wrote, it smacks of racism. I just want to say, parenth- I mean, not parenthetically, it's quite a point. To call the concept of Jewish chosenness racism is ridiculous for two reasons. First of all, Judaism is not a race. If you're familiar with Jews, you have Jews from all races. So by definition, you can't say it's about racism. Number two... Judaism holds that anybody could convert to Judaism. So by definition, it can't be defined as racism because any person from any race, if they only want, can become a Jew if they want to accept upon themselves the yoke of Torah, the yoke of mitzvahs, the yoke of Judaism. So by definition, the concept of ethnocentricity and racism would not apply here because any person from any race, first of all, can be Jewish, and even if they're not Jewish, can convert to Judaism. But I want to go one step deeper. And that is, not only does a Jewish chosenness have nothing to do with arrogance, elitism, racism, it's the exact opposite. First point is the first point, but we're now going to go one step deeper. This is based on a, uh, a chapter of the Balatanya and Tanya in Igeris Sakaina's letters, Perik Beis, Maimida begins, the nucleus of the following idea, is from uh, the Alter Rebbe, from the Balatanya. And the truth is that this really will give perspective on what chosenness means. If chosenness translates into a sense of elitism, obviously you're really clueless as to what it means. And this will also explain a very interesting phenomenon, and that is, I had the privilege of speaking to thousands of types of Jews for many years. Jews are allergic to the term chosen people. Tell a Puerto Rican, I heard you're chosen. I was like, of course. 
Tell an Italian, you're chosen? Of course, who's chosen? Tell a Japanese, you're the chosen people? Of course, we always knew the Japanese are the chosen people. The sun rises first in Japan. Why? Because we're the chosen people. Tell the British, they're the chosen people. Of course, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Tell the Chinese, they're the chosen people, as they'll say, of course. In fact, the word China means the middle kingdom, the center kingdom. In other words, our kingdom is at the center of the world. So you just learned the origin of the name China. That's what we learned in Yeshiva. <laughs> Tell the Muslims, they're the chosen people. Oh, it's not a question. And if you don't believe it, I'll behead you. At least many of them. Tell the Christians, they're the chosen people. That's obvious. God made his new covenant with us because you reject his, uh, you rejected uh, whoever you rejected. Tell Jews you're the chosen people. And they're like, not me. Not me, not me. Maybe my shviger, maybe my wife believes it. Not me. Go to an intelligent mainstream Jewish crowd in San Francisco, in Santa Cruz, in wherever it is. Tell them you're the chosen people. They're like, no, 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 nothing to do with me. This is maybe ultra-Orthodox fundamentalist. Nothing to do with me. Why are Jews so allergic? Why are Muslims so proud of it? And Jews get so allergic to it. Why is it? Well, we did suffer a lot, that's true. But even among ourselves, we're very uncomfortable. Not only among Gentiles. Even among ourselves, Jews are uncomfortable. The answer to this is, you know why? Because Jews are the chosen people. (laughs) That's the answer. Now let me explain what I mean. Why does that make you feel so uncomfortable? You see... There are two types of choice. And this has to be understood. It's a sensitive and profound idea. There are two types of being chosen. I say you're chosen. What does it mean you're chosen? When we hear the word chosen, we actually don't understand what it means. We right away have a stereotype. We put it in a box of what it means to be chosen. We explain to ourselves that's what it means we're the chosen people. And that's why we have a lot of questions. So we really have to have the courage and the humility to go back to the beginning. What does it mean that you're chosen? Say a mortal king chooses you. The president of the United States of America, it may be a bad example, but a president of a very successful country or a king throughout the generations chooses you. What does that make you do? So look at the Megillah. Achashveder chooses Haman to become his prime minister. As Haman ben Amdasi, you don't have to clap. He, he elevates Haman and he makes him the prime minister. And he says, everybody got to bow, has to bow down to Haman. And what does Haman feel about himself? He feels inflated. He feels superior. He feels superior to others. Not holier than thou, but better than thou. The king chose me. He didn't choose you. He chose me. He chose me because of my looks, because of my wisdom because of my depth, because of my skills, because of my capabilities, because of my prowess, because of my power, because of my charisma, because of my accomplishments, etc., etc. Whatever the reason is. But it gives me a feeling of arrogance, of elitism. I was chosen, you were not chosen. That's nature, that's natural. That's why Haman says, Lemi yachpoitz hamelech lasas yikar, yoisimimeni. Who would the king want to honor more than me? This is the man. That's the natural feeling of being chosen. That is when a mortal human being, a CEO, 
a CFO, a president, a monarch, a king, a head of state chooses you, or he is chosen by others, it naturally gives us that sense. When we speak about chosen people, who really chose us? (laughs) Who chose us was Hashem. When God chooses you, it's actually the exact opposite. When God chooses you, the one definition that we could speak about, that we could say when we speak about Hashem is, as is always, as he's always described in the literature of Kabbalah and Nister, Chassidus and Kabbalah, is Ein Soif, infinity. When infinity chooses you, in other words, when infinity cultivates a special relationship with you and makes you aware of infinity, what do you think happens to you? What happens to you when you feel that you're in the presence of infinity? What do you think happens? When you experience yourself in the presence of infinity, what do you think you feel about yourself? More than small. You cease to exist. If something is infinite, it's infinite. It pervades all of reality. So if I become aware of infinity, if I feel myself close to infinity, what it does is it inculcates within me a feeling that is the exact opposite of petty, pompous, arrogant, self-importance and elitism. It actually makes me feel uniquely humble. In fact, my I ceases to exist as my entire I is only an expression and a conduit and part of the Ein Soif because infinity includes and encompasses all of reality. So this means when Ein Soif chooses you, when you feel closer to Ein Soif, kol ha-karev, karev yoyser, yoyser keloi in his words. The closer you are, the less you feel of yourself, not the more of yourself, feel of yourself. The further you are, the less you're chosen, the more you could feel of yourself. The more you're chosen, you feel that your ego becomes completely insignificant. Instead of smug, you become introspective. All pettiness has to melt away if you're really experiencing infinity. So that's why you will see an interesting phenomenon. What does it mean that the Jews are the chosen people? It means they were chosen to experience themselves as nothing. They were chosen by infinity. So they were chosen to experience themselves as a conduit for infinity. So you'll see all Jews throughout history who felt that they were really chosen by Hashem, they had much more respect even for animals than other people. They had much more sensitivity even to mosquitoes, bees, worms, and frogs. They had tremendous sensitivity to other people, and they almost had no judgmentalism of people. Why? Because the more you experience closeness to Hashem, by definition, the more humble you feel. The more you feel that you're a conduit of Ain't Soif. There's never this feeling, I am better than you. I am holier than you. I am grander than you. I am better. I am superior to you. More, cho- more you feel chosen, the more love and respect there is to others. If the feeling of chosenness makes you feel superior to other people... It has nothing to do with being chosen to God. This is of by God. This is your own ego trip. 
People who feel themselves chosen by Hashem, there's always one result. They're extremely humble and extremely sensitive to other human beings. If I look down at you in the name of being chosen, if I look up to myself and I feel really superior to you in the name of being chosen, obviously I am experiencing nothing of God's choice in me. Because if I would experience kirvas elikim, how would I see myself? I would see myself as a conduit of the Ein Soif, not petty self-importance and putting you down will contribute nothing to me. On the contrary, what I experience myself is I'm part of Hashem and therefore when I look at another person, that's what I will see in them. If there's ever an agenda of establishing my superiority over them, obviously I'm not in touch with this whole experience. So the Jewish experience of Ashreinu Matoyev Chalkeinu, Manoyim Goyraleinu, how fortunate are we? How fortunate is our lot? How pleasant, how fortunate is our part? How pleasant our lot? How beautiful our inheritance expresses itself in what? Ashreinu, Sha'onu Mashkimim Hashem Hashem Echod, the only one. The only existence. Ein oid milvadai, the only reality. Ein soif has chosen me. If ein soif has chosen me, I was actually chosen to become an ambassador for the ein soif and experience the nothingness of my ego. So if I become buddy-buddy with a human leader, it inflates my arrogance, it inflates my elitism. A relationship with God actually bursts your selfish bubble. Because delusions of self-importance have to melt away. So what is the idea of the chosen people? A nation of individuals who have been given the opportunity to sense God's closeness, hear His truth and relate His message to the world. That is the definition of Jewish chosenness. So it's not a gene, it's a state of the soul. Now you ask, does it smack from elitism? Anybody who wants to join the chosen people can do it. It's called conversion. There's only one condition. You have to be ready to have your bubble burst. If you're ready to have your bubble burst and you want to be chosen by Ein Soif, which means experience yourself as being a conduit without any sense of I detached from him, Pajalasta. Welcome. Please. Bruchim Aboyim. So the arrogant person is never acting chosen. And the Jew who says, I'm chosen, and therefore, and my version of Jewishness, of course, is chosen. And therefore, you naturally look down at other people, he's completely detached from this entire experience. It has nothing to do with the experience of Kirva Salakim. Kirva Salakim creates the most least judgmental and arrogant people you can even conceive and imagine. The test of chosenness is always how humble you are. That's why Jews pass this test with flying colors. Their humility is so deep, they become allergic to the idea that they are chosen. Most other religious people are quite comfortable with the fact that God chose them. Jews will do anything to say that they're nothing special. That's what I call the chosen people. That's where you see it more than anywhere else. They will do anything to get rid of this title, this claim. And that's why you'll see 
that for most of our history, I'm not going to say all of our history, most of our history, what did Jews do with this feeling that they were Jews? Did they wake up every morning and ask themselves, how can we murder everybody who's not Jewish? How can we crush them, oppress them, manipulate them, destroy them, turn them into our slaves and servants? Yeah, there were some Jews perhaps who used different opportunities to do that. But in mass, if you look at collective Jewish history recorded for thousands of years, not only by Jews, but non-Jews, wherever they had an opportunity to be of assistance to the locals, to other nations, to other tribes, to other peoples, they did it. They made invaluable contributions almost to any field of society to enhance it. This is how they viewed it. This is how they experienced it. This is inherent to the very idea of Becha Bachar Hashem. What does it mean, Becha Bachar Hashem? What does it mean, What does it mean? It means to be able to look at the world and say, I don't exist. My eye is just an expression of your infinite truth, of your infinite presence. Which brings us now to the next step. And that is, the person asked the question, who needs this burden? Stop justifying it, stop rationalizing it. Leave me alone. Let me unchoose myself. The truth is, many Jews say, what do we need this for? Let's just forget this. Let's cut this out of our culture. We are just regular people. We love sushi. We like playing golf. Some of us like money. We like nice houses. We want the weather to change. We're human beings. We are human beings. Yes. Okay, some of us like a filter fish or schug or chicken soup or knedlach. But let's not turn that into something very significant. But the truth is, any student of history knows about two phenomena that I want to address briefly. And I don't know if a rational person can even begin to explain any of them if you really eradicate the concept of the chosen people. So if you want to know if the chosen people can be proven rationally, I'm going to point to two things. And it's very difficult to explain these two things. Number one, the obsession with the Jewish people that did not stop for thousands of years and still continues as I speak, day in and day out. An irrational obsession with a tiny minority. Sometimes positive and more often negative. That's point number one. It's incredible when you think about it. From the day that the first Jew stepped foot on this planet, talking about Avram Avinu Abraham, who was born in 1948, not the 1948 you're thinking about, but 1948 since creation, 1948 years since creation of the world. From that day till this very day, there is not one empire or civilization and a large part of humanity that has not been obsessed with the Jews despite the fact that for most of their history they have not constituted even 1% of humanity. Today, not only do we not constitute 1% of humanity, we don't constitute even a half a percent, we don't constitute even a quarter of 1% of humanity. Did you know that? We are around 0.2 of human civilization. When I was in China once, I was speaking to some professors there, so I asked them, how many Jews do you think there are in the world? They told me, from the noise you make, it seems like 3.5 billion. There's 1.5 billion Chinese, so there must be 3.5 billion Jews. Chinese make noise, but you can't compare it to the noise that Israel makes, that the Jews make. 
So I told them there are 14 million Jews, which is basically less than a statistical error in a Chinese census. <laughs> they looked at me, they said, you're lying. I said, I'm not lying. They said, so why do you make so much noise? I said, good question. We've been asking that question for 4,000 years. We're trying to play little league. We just don't know how. We're, they always push us in somehow to big league. We're trying, trust me, we're trying to go to side stage. We don't know how. Indonesia has 300 million people living there. 300 million people. How often do you read about Indonesia? Once in 11 years. And when there's a tsunami. Israel has 7 million people. Before 1967, it's the size of Dallas International Airport. Israel is the size of Dallas International Airport. It's either front page, top or bottom, almost every single day. For the last 70 years and really for the last few thousand years. It's fascinating. It's literally like a toothpick in a football field. And yet the toothpick is the obsession of the world. Take the United Nations. The United Nations has 192 countries that are members in the United Nations. Most of its resolutions and condemnations are focused on Israel. Imagine the United Nations would focus most of its resolutions on Panama. You would say there's something off, right? Panama? Panama? But with Israel, it's almost a given. Last year, Last year, I think one year itself, maybe one resolution against Syria, 20 against Israel. In Syria, there were 400,000 deaths. 400,000 deaths as a result of the civil war in Syria. One resolution, one condemnation. And the question is, what is this? I mean, we know Jews. We have vices. I'm not from the Jews that think we're perfect. We have vices. We have challenges. We're not perfect. What's this obsession? The last generation, you don't have to look back, the last generation for Nazi Germany was more important to exterminate the Jews than to win the Second World War. The Soviet Union, which lasted, the communist regime, which lasted for 70 years, Stalin murdered 50 million people, but his obsession, no, hands down, was the Jews. The only thing that the Nazis and the communists had in common was irrational, obsessive hatred of the Jewish people. Much of the contemporary Muslim world, nearly all of the Arab world, is obsessed with the annihilation of one state. There are 192 states in the UN. There's one country whose legitimacy is still questioned every day. Does it have a right to exist? So the English believe they were the chosen. The Japanese believe they were chosen. The Chinese say they're the chosen. And yet, when the Jews said they're the chosen people, the Nazis decided to create gas chambers. Why? What's this obsession? What's this hatred? It seems so strange. If we were 50% of humanity, we're not even a quarter of a percent. And it doesn't stop. How do you explain this? And it never stopped in any generation. What is it? I have no rational explanation for it, besides the fact that somehow... The Jews carry the presence of God in history. The Jews, in other words, are the chosen people. But there's also good, there's something very positive and powerful that I was speaking to a group of students some time ago. 
I took a group of students to Poland and, and, and to Israel, and one of them raised an interesting question. He said, are we a continuation of the Jews who stood at Sinai? I said, what do you think? He says, you can't compare. We don't feel that we're the continuation. We're like a new generation of Jews. There's a disconnect. I don't feel connected, he said, to Maimonides, to the Rambam, to Rashi, to Rabbi Akiva, to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Many Jews don't. It's like we don't even feel connected to our parents, some of us, or our grandparents, especially before the war. So it's like, now you're connecting me to Jews who stood at a mountain 3,300 years back? This is what the student asked. So I looked at the student and I said, I want you to remember one thing. And that is, look around at the world and ask yourself one question. How many people still hate Jews? You'll open any newspaper any day and you'll see somewhere anti-Semitism has reared its ugly head. In a campus, in a college, in a university, in a newspaper, by a professor, by a journalist, by a politician. In Europe, of course, in the Muslim countries, in the Arab countries, non-stop. In Europe, Jews are sometimes frightened today for their lives. Anti-Semitism has reared its ugly head, especially recent years. We thought after the Holocaust, they'll be wiped out, and suddenly, the whole thing was resurrected again. And Jews can't believe it. From what? From where? From when? I said, isn't this fascinating? The same hate that they had to Jews 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, is still alive and well. To you and to me. What does this mean? If the basis of this hatred is because somehow negativity senses holiness. Evil senses Kedusha. Evil senses purity and holiness. It's allergic to it and it hates it. In other words, it was the holiness that they felt in the Jewish people as a divine nation that they were obsessed with and they targeted and that anti-Semitism has not ceased till this very day. What does it mean? It means that if you, when you look at yourself in the mirror, even if you don't feel that you're a continuum of past, the fact is that somehow, in your very presence, in your reality, you carry the same exact holiness, the same exact purity, the same exact divinity, of hundreds of generations of Jews till the first generation who left Egypt were targeted by Pare and stood at the feet of Mount Sinai. Yes, you may call yourself modern, you may live in a different milieu, you may use iPhones and have a Facebook account and Instagram and be, and be completely integrated, you think in modern culture, but there's something in your very body and your very soul where you embody and personify the same exact holiness of hundreds of generations of Jews, and therefore you attract the same venom, the same vile, the same disgust, the same hatred, because there's only one reason you attract it. Because somehow, Hitler, Stalin, Nasrallah, Arafat, Chmelenetsky, Nebuchadnezzar, Sancheiriv, and Pompey, Caesar, and Adrian, Vespasian, and Titus, Paroi, <coughs> and Turkomedei, all felt a disgust with the Jewish people because they somehow represent the presence of God in history. You are the same Jews who stood at Sinai. Exactly the same Jews. When you look at yourself in the mirror, respect what you see. Understand what you're looking at. Appreciate 
what you are looking at. That's number one. There's also something else. Factor number two. And this is important also for Jews to understand. And I'm referring here to the insane, and I say insane, almost senseless and irrational contribution of the Jewish people to civilization, to humanity. In terms of secular contributions, whether you're dealing with polio vaccine or the sewing machine, whether you're dealing with revolutions in physics or revolutions in politics or psychology, the contribution of Jews to medicine, economics, trade, science, has been so remarkable and completely disproportionate to their numbers. One of the first Jews to win a Nobel Prize in 1918 was a German Jew named Fritz Haber. And I think I once shared with you, he invented artificial fertilizer. What he called, he created bread from the ear. There was not enough fertilizer to sustain Germany. They didn't have enough... uh, excrement from animals to be able to fertilize the fields, the crop. So he created, he was a chemist, he came from a Hasidic family, his wife was also Jewish, the first female PhD in Germany, she translated his works to English, it's a tragic story, what happened with him, it's not for now, but Fritz Haber got the Nobel Prize. It's assumed today, there are 7 billion people in the world, a third of people are alive because of this Jew. A third of humanity is alive. (laughs) Call that a contribution or a contribution. I can go through lists and lists, but I want to focus on one thing, and that is the Nobel Prize phenomenon. I don't want to sound like every Jewish family has an Uncle Harry or an Uncle Chaim Yankel who loves speaking about Nobel Prizes especially at certain Shabbos dinners or Pesach seders or whatever. I don't want to sound like that uncle of yours. But uh, <laughs> I'll sound like him. I'll sound like him for a few minutes. The Nobel Prizes, for those who don't know, are awarded to individuals who have rendered the greatest service to humanity. Between 1901 and this year, they awarded around 800 around 900 Nobel Prizes, approximately 900 Nobel Prizes. Around 200 of them were given to Jews. In 2011 alone, five Jews won the Nobel Prize. 23% of individuals who won the Nobel Prizes were Jewish. 37% of all American recipients of the Nobel Prize were Jewish. So Jews make up zero. 0.2% of the world population. 2% of U.S. population. You would expect that the Jews should get 0.2% of Nobel Prizes. Instead, in America, 36% and 23% of the entire world. So let's give a little perspective. How many Muslims are there? One and a half billion. They received, since 1901, eight Nobel Prizes. One of them was given, of course, to Yasser Arafat for peace. That's one and a half billion people. Seven Nobel Prizes. There are 14 or 15, maybe 16 million Jews, and they received 200 Nobel Prizes. 
So this is very, very strange. So there's a book I once read by an Irish Gentile. His name is Thomas Cohill. He wrote a book called The Gifts of the Jews. And it left an impression on me. I want to read you a paragraph. The Jew gave us the outside and the inside. This is a non-Jew, an Irish. They gave us our outlook, outside, and our inner life. We can hardly get up in the morning or cross the street without being Jewish. Today, a man or a woman who wakes up in the morning and thinks is thinking Jewishly. Because the Jews gave us our entire perspective and outlook on the outer life and the inner life. We dream Jewish dreams. We hope Jewish hopes. Most of our best words were invented by Jews. For example, new Adventure, surprise, unique, individual, person, vocation, time, history, future, freedom, progress, spirit, faith, hope, justice. These are gifts of the Jews. These are concepts. We take for granted these concepts. Morality, good, evil, ethics, holiness, compassion, sensitivity, respect, charity. These are not facts. These are ideas. Justice is an idea. Hope is an idea. Freedom is an idea. Happiness is an idea. Future is an idea. Redemption is an idea. Jews gave this to the world. Cal says, the West's most deeply held beliefs about life, human nature, God, justice, are all owed to the ancient Israelites. The Hebrews developed a whole, whole new way of experiencing reality. It may be said with some justice that theirs is the only new idea that human beings have ever had. Now, if I would say this, you would say I'm crazy, I'm a racist, I'm insane. But this is an Irish Gentile. There are three thinkers, four thinkers, that have most influenced the previous century, and they literally changed the world. Karl Marx created socialism. It's changed the world, not to the good. Sigmund Freud, or Schleimer Freud, is the father of psychoanalysis. Changed the world. If anybody who's in therapy... You have Freud to thank. Even if we differ on the methods of therapy and psychology. Albert Einstein transformed the world of science and physics. Charles Darwin, the world of biology. So you have Marx, Einstein, Freud, and Darwin. Three of them were Jewish. Darwin was wrong. In 2000, Time magazine had to choose the man of the century. Who's the most important man of the century? Who did they choose? They chose from 1900 to 2000, who was the most important person? They chose Albert Einstein. More influential than Roosevelt, than Churchill, than Stalin, than Hitler. They decided to choose Albert Einstein. This is all secular contributions. Nothing to do with Jews, nothing to do with spirituality, nothing to do with religion. Now talk about the contributions of the Jewish people to the world of the mind, the world of the spirit, the world of God. Talk about the Tanakh. Talk about Mishnah. Talk about Gemara, Medrash, Halacha, Agadah, Rishonim, Acharonim, Poiskim, Kabbalah, Musa, Machshava, Hashkafa, Chsidus. Over 3,300 years. So now you have to ask, answer a question as a rational person. And this is what I tell you, dear people who ask the questions and others who, uh, who ask similar questions and others who think about these questions. Is it just a coincidence? Maybe. Is it a coincidence 
that merely 0.2% of the world population made all of the above contributions. Can we explain that a tiny group of ex-slaves were able to change history? They're the ones who introduced the concept of a moral God. The world has one creator who wants people to behave good. The world has a singular source, a singular purpose. They wrote the world's most influential book. It still remains the bestseller. And it's called the Bible. The Tanakh. They devised ethical monotheism. Ethics based on emuna. They're the only civilization that denied the cyclical worldview. Meaning that everything just goes in circles. There's no progress. Everything just goes around and around. And they gave humanity belief in linear history. Meaning purposeful history. They provided morality-driven prophets. Prophets who spoke about peace, justice, humanity. Yeshaya, Yirmiya, Yecheskel, Amos, Tzvan, Yechagai, and all of their nevuas. Can we rationally say that these people did all of this and evoked the deepest hatred and admiration in history and it was all based on coincidence? Simply coincidence. There's 14 million perhaps. But are you going to tell me it's irrational to appreciate a different truth? And that is that it's hard to say they made all these contributions without God playing the decisive role in this people's history. Remember, without the Jews, there would be no Christianity. Without the Jews, there would be no Islam. We're responsible for those too. All of Christianity and Islam is because of the Jews. Is this all because our mothers never accepted anything less than a hundred on our tests? It's certainly part of it, but why did our mothers become so meshuggah in the first place? I want to read you a line of one of the greatest writers of all times, not Jewish, a Russian writer, his name was Leo Tolstoy. If I would say this, you would tell me I'm a racist. Tolstoy says it, he's not Jewish. I quote, What is a Jew? What is a Jew? You will rarely hear a Jew say this, or even appreciate this. So it's good to hear when Tolstoy says it. By the way, if you ever want to know who the Jews are, and you want to read through Chumash, you can't read any parsha that speaks about Jews speaking about Jews. The only way you figure out in Chumash who Jews really are is you have to listen to Bilam. When Bilam opens his mouth, Ah, Mechaya. A whole Sefer Bamidbar, the Jews are Misoyninim, Miraglim, Kairachs, Midasons, Mitavidams, troublemakers, revolutionaries. Suddenly a guy comes into the picture. Unbelievable. He goes on and on. Suddenly a Gentile opens his mouth. Whoa! Because the only ones who believe that they're not chosen are the Jews. Ask a non-Jew about a Jew. Oh, of course they're the chosen people. The only country that thinks it's a normal country... About the only country that thinks about itself that it's a normal country is Israel. Nobody else thinks Israel is a normal country. Nobody else thinks Jews are a normal Jew, but Jews are obsessed with feeling that they're normal because they're chosen, as I explained before. So here, here's Tolstoy. What is a Jew? 
Let us see what kind of peculiar creature the Jew is. All the rulers and all the nations have separately abused, molested, oppressed, persecuted, trampled, butchered, burnt and hanged. And in spite of all this, he is yet alive. What is a Jew who has never allowed himself to be led astray by all the earthly possessions, which his oppressors and prosecutors constantly offered in order that he should change his faith and forsake his own Jewish religion. The Jew is that sacred being who has brought down from heaven the everlasting fire and has illuminated with it the entire world. He is the religious source, spring and fountain of which all the rest of the peoples have drawn their beliefs and their religions. The Jew is the pioneer of liberty. Even in those olden days when the people were divided into two distinct classes, Classes, slaves and masters, even so long ago, had a law of Moses prohibited the practice of keeping a person in bondage for more than six years. The Jew is the pioneer of civilization. Ignorance was condemned in olden Palestine even more than it is today in civilized Europe. The Jew is the emblem of civil and religious toleration. Love the stranger and the sojourner, Moses commands, because you have been strangers in the land of Egypt. And this was said in those remote and savage times when the principal ambition of the the races and nations consisted in crushing and enslaving one another. The Jew is the emblem of eternity. He whom neither slaughter or torture of thousands of years could destroy. He whom neither fire nor sword nor inquisition was able to wipe off the face of the earth. He who was the first to produce the oracles of God. He who has been for so long the guardian of prophecy and who transmitted it to the rest of the world. Such a nation cannot be destroyed. The Jew is as everlasting as eternity itself. So a few years ago, I was in Durban. Anybody here is familiar with Durban? Durban is in South Africa. And in the year 2000, there was a United Nations conference in Durban on the topic of racism. They had to vote if there are any countries that still practice racism in the world. And they reached a conclusion that there is one country that practices racism in the world. It was not Syria. It was not Iran, it was not Saudi Arabia, it was not Afghanistan, it was not Pakistan, it was, of course, Israel. The United States was the only country that left, the the ambassador of the United States left the room when this resolution was passed. Not many Jews live in Durban and Umschlange, a few hundred Jews, and my friend, the rabbi there, Shloim, invited me to come speak in the JCC. I spoke... The topic of chosen people naturally came up. This was not long after, after that vote. Somebody in the crowd suggested that it's a horrible idea to call Jews the chosen people in contrast to other people of the world. You're chosen, everybody else is garbage. I turned to the fellow And I asked him, what is this notion based on? Are you Jewish? He says, yeah, that's why I'm sensitive to it. I said, what does it do for you? He says, it just makes me feel that we look down at the whole world and that's why there's anti-Semitism. And I said, if you stop denying you're the chosen people, you think they'll stop believing you're the chosen people? Remember, if you're the chosen people, it doesn't have to do what you say. If you don't say it, they'll hate you even more because they see you're lying. He's like, I don't believe we're the chosen people. 
And to say it when I don't believe it is both a lie and it creates anti-Semitism. But even you who believe it, you shouldn't say it because it creates hatred. So I asked this fellow, I said, I want to ask you a question, and that is, are you married? He says, yes, I'm married. I said, so how could you be such a hypocrite? He said, what do you mean? Why am I a hypocrite? I say to him, are you handsome? What should he say, not? He makes, you know, you ask a Jew if he's handsome. He goes like this. (laughs) So I say, are you intelligent? What should he say, not? He thought he was brilliant. So again, a machmet and cop, you know. So I say, so you're handsome and you're brilliant. And we all heard that you're articulate and you're definitive. And from the nature of your question, we know that you're sensitive and respectful. So you have alamilas. You basically have all the skill, all the great blessings in the world. You're handsome, you're brilliant, you're articulate, and you're emotionally respectful and sensitive. So I now ask you a question. How in the world did you get married? How could you be such a bigot and such a hypocrite and get married? He says, what are you talking about? I said, do you imagine how all other women feel? Think about what my wife feels like. I say, a man like you, how many women are there in the world? Three billion? I said, a man like you should have stood up and say, I marry no one or I marry everyone. How could you choose one woman and make her your wife? Such a great man. You choose one woman, you make her your wife, and all the women are left to marry people like me. <laughs> or some other shmageggies in New York. I said, how, how insensitive, how discriminating, how bigoted, how male chauvinistic. Your wife is the only woman deserving of happiness in the world? And all of our wives are deserving of misery and agony? A man of principle should have refused to marry anybody or everybody. He's like, what are you talking about? This is ludicrous. I'm like, you chose your wife. And by that, you made a statement that every other woman is chopped liver. He said, I never said that. Just because my wife is my wife, it doesn't mean that every other woman is not a woman. She's just not my wife, but she's a respected, wonderful woman. She is just not my wife. It's not an act of discrimination. I could be married to one woman, and I chose one woman, but every person has their own respect, their own self-respect. I said, wonderful. You just got it. You just got it. At Sinai, God married one nation. He got married, so to speak, to one nation. That's how the Mishnah in Tainus describes, Yoim Chasu Nosoi Zematan He married one nation. Does it mean that every other people, every other nation is worthless and insignificant? Every other woman is insignificant? On the contrary. It means that with this nation, there is a marriage. There is a certain intimate relationship, like a husband and a wife. And this explains, Jews have a fantastic, interesting mitzvah. To learn Torah by day and by night. Whenever they can, they have to learn Torah. Why? Even if you know what to do, you have to learn. Why? I said, imagine, imagine, you have a good friend. And for a few days, you don't call your friend. And after a few days, you call your friend. Does your friend tell you, a few days I didn't hear from you? You're not interested in me anymore? You don't want me anymore? Hey, relax, it was just a few days. What if you don't call your wife a few days? This is a 
few days where you lost interest in me? You forgot that I'm your wife? You forgot that I'm your husband? You forgot? Jews learn Torah it's basically showing interest in their spouse. So they don't stop. They don't stop showing interest in their spouse. They get up in the morning, if you're on a trip out overseas, you give a call. That's called chakras, you call in the morning. But who's on a trip overseas and calls their wife once? You're dead meat. You call at least 17 times a day. Somebody else, you call three times a day. It's not so bad. You call shachris, you call mincha. Mayri, it's a minik, depends on the wife. Ha'idna kavul chayva. Today it's already a chayva. Today's marriage is mayri, is a chayva. So what's the uniqueness of a marriage? The uniqueness of a marriage is that it's 24-7. A marriage doesn't mean when I go to work, I'm not married till I come home. Although some men believe that. When they leave their house, they're in work, they're not married. Wife calls you up one o'clock in the afternoon. What are you doing? Oh, I'm sitting on a hammock and drinking pina colada and trying to pay your credit card bills. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm, ga- I'm gambling. What do you think I'm doing one o'clock in the afternoon? One o'clock in his mind, he's divorced. He's eating his pastrami sandwich with mustard and sauerkraut and watching some YouTube video of me. And you shouldn't be calling him at that time. But the truth is, halavai, it should be a video of me. But the truth is... <laughs> Oh, I forgot, you have filters, right, I know that In your office too, right, yeah So, in in, Some men think that they're not married when they go to work But that's not marriage, marriage is 24 hours a day It's an essential relationship In fact, one can love their wife or hate their wife They can't ignore their wife One can love God or hate God Jews don't know how to ignore God They just don't know how to do it. There is an essential relationship, I told this Jew. He married us. We married him. Other women, other men are very significant. It's the Bible that taught that every human being was created in God's image, not only Jews. When you have a good marriage, you respect other marriages more, not less. When you have a bad marriage, you respect other marriages less. When you have a good marriage, you respect other marriages much more. So that a true relationship between the Jew and Hashem is a good and powerful and potent marriage. It's eternal, it's inherent, it's enduring, it's always there, and every Jew is in that relationship. It's an essential relationship. Not only does it not negate the significance and value of other people, on the contrary, it allows the Jews to reveal to the world that every person is chosen in his or her own way. Thank you very much and have a wonderful week. I can't be, I can't press the unchosen button. Why can't I have the option? When you ask, I'm going to stand on the cash as well. Of the ganze Chief, the ganze Sach, the Mitzis, the Nayid. How do you do as a Sach, the Nishdem? It's a great idea that I've chosen. But I'm afraid of the ganze. It's a good question. He wants to become unchosen. Well, let's think about it. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but why are you laughing? Get, you could get. Here's a little bit of a different thing. Let's say you say, uh, I don't want to be a human being. I want to be a dog. I want to be a frog. I want to be a cow. I don't want to have to get dressed. I don't want to go to the bathroom. I don't want to eat with a fork and a knife. I don't want to prepare my food. I want to eat grass. 
I don't want to have to go to the bathroom. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to have payas mitashena kapel. No, what do you say? Try it out. It is. It is. He's crazy, but he can do it. You can become a dog. He can become a dog. He can become a dog, but he can do act like. Fine, but 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 okay, but but that was now go into a cage and make on the couch. That you know, you cannot, but you understand. A person is not an animal. You'll never be happy as an animal. You'll never be happy. What's the difference? Uh, I'll take you and I'll put you in a corral in a. And not a cage, you know, where, where, where the horses are, and I'll give you grass, and you'll walk around there, you're going to be a happy person? No. The horse will be a happy horse, MS, 25 years will be a happy horse, MS, he'll walk around, run around, and you'll do exactly the same thing, nobody will bother you, you'll be a miserable person, but it's not a miserable person, huh? a miserable fed who's really a person, why? Because happiness comes from one thing. When you are true to who you really are. Happiness doesn't come from copying somebody else. If I'm a musician, yeah, and you give me all the money in the world, but you don't let me yeah, listen to music or play music, I'm going to be a miserable person. Yeah? If I'm a person of books, you'll give me all the money in the world, all the food in the world, but you don't let me read, you don't let me think, you don't let me write, I'm going to be miserable. In other words, to be able to be happy, you have to be who you are. I can't be who you are. And I can't be who the horse is. For the horse to be happy, the horse has to be a horse. Let's think about something else. The horse looks at a tree. And the horse says, ah, I want to be a tree. What do I have to run around and give ride? I want to be a tree, one place. So you take the horse, you tie him up to the ground. You give him all the sunlight he needs, all the water he needs. And he's not let him move. He's going to be happy. He's going to be miserable. Why? The tree is a happy tree. Because a tree is a tree. And a horse is a horse. And a human being is a human being. And a Jew is a Jew. A Jew is a Jew. So he won't be happy. He'll never, he'll never, he'll never, he won't be himself. It's a different breed. It's a different breed. He is who he is. Not bad, not good. He is who he is. Yeah, to be a man and not a horse. I can't go to the bathroom in my corral. I eat with a fork. I have to cook my food, right? I can't urinate wherever I am, true? I can't just go, meh. <laughs> Forget about a yid. To be a person, you have to be civilized, yeah? And to be a horse, it's also mechayev, like a plant. To be a chamoy, it's also mechayev. Elamai, you're right. So you say, but I want to change. Okay, I understand. You want to change. You really, if you really know yourself, you don't want to change. <coughs> because if you change, if you look at somebody else, you're somebody else. If you're you, you can't change. You know, if I was bothered to say for the anti-Semites for the last whatever how many years, that they feel that they don't have the privilege or something to be that. Connected to them for the they don't, they don't want to be. They don't, they, 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 they don't want to be Jewish. They, make, they want the toive of Yiddishkeit. They want the benefit that Yiddishkeit gives. Some word for Vichnemazad is the fate of the benefit from the mensch. I mean, not. No, no, no. no, no there's a certain simchet, a certain minuchet, there's a certain depth. Which they can certain, have. Which they could have if they emulate the Jew, but they don't want to. They want to live like ah, they're married. That's why they have the option to, to convert. Yeah. Or, or even to be Mekayim Shev Mishmenech. And they will have the, the same happy. A certain degree. I can put it, they will not be jealous then. Yeah. 
Americans did that. America did just that. The founding fathers did that. They created a country based on the Bible. They used to have a Shabbos on Sunday. Whatever they did it their way, but uh, but uh, they made a very nice society in America. Lafiadach. Schreibt ihr das auf jedem Menschen der Welt auf Lagoi? Er ist in der Skadisch, Kötisch, Kadosch. Was ist das? Ich habe gesagt, ich habe gesagt, ich habe gesagt, ich habe Nein, somebody came to eat by me Shabbos. So he was in a recovery uh, recovery center. <coughs> in Florida somewhere. He was recovering from something. Uh, Finding the shaman. A deep soul. So he tells me that one morning he was very depressed. So somebody came over to him over there and says, What's with you, the chosen people? I don't understand you. You were chosen by God. How could you wake up depressed? He said, If I would be chosen, if I would be chosen by God, just the knowledge that God chose me, I would wake up with so much happiness. How could you be so depressed? He said, I don't understand. You and all the other Jews, the chosen people, walk around depressed. How could it be? <laughs> That's what he told me. He told me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> the fact that most of the contributions you spoke about in the, in the world are secular contributions. Like, yeah. It's a good point, but it has a question too to it. Listen, uh, in these, those were generations where, uh, till today we have the problem, Jews don't know how to integrate. 
Okay. They felt that to be successful in the big world, you have to leave Yiddishkeit. The Jews that remained in Yiddishkeit felt that to be Jewish, you can't be successful in the outer world. That's the conflict we still have. Oh, so There's no mean, integration. Uh, uh-huh. That's the tragedy of Jewish life. But technically, there can there, there of course. can be. Of course. Yeah. yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah, sure. You understood? He says when a mosquito says that he's the chosen, the chosen people, nobody would be afraid. A mosquito says, not a, uh, an ant, an ant. If you think it's true, then you get afraid. <laughs> Very good. But the Shabbos for Musaf is the, the, the way it's be thought. It's yeah. still unsegular. If it's so that it's so nothing, if it's basically that we are just connected to the infinite, then why is it? Um, the way you, it's still the way chosen. It's still. What's the In other words, the message is a little bit arrogant. This is. The message is arrogant because we're not. Well, we're not teufels the verter. We're not going to learn the verter. No, we're not teufels. What does that mean? That the Ebers to clap. As if Trump clapped. He clapped the rice. Oh, because I'm better. Well, the Felix is a very other. And the Ebers to clap. As we all have been curious about him, is what filled me. Call her Kadav Kadav Yoiser. Is Yoiser Kaloi. Der Nichtigkeit von der Jesus Adam verkehrt, er fühlt sich wie ein Heilig von der Insuf. In Jiddisch verstehst du besser, sag ich, ja? Okay, ich will auf Reden in Jiddisch. You understand? Kamei ist kulle kaloi chashem, nicht Kamei, not in his presence, the ego comes out. The closer, the more you feel his presence, the more you feel that you're just a part of infinity, a part of Insuf. So, somebody who really understands what's Pshat Becha, Bacher Hashem, Hashem chose you. It translates the exact opposite of elitism. And they feel it, whoever, the, 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 that it's the ego. Some People are very sensitive because they feel, oh, I'm chosen. The I'm, ego I'll discriminate again. Yeah, you're nothing. I'm, I'm everything. If you're feeling I'm everything, obviously you weren't cho- you, you, you're not experiencing the chosenness. You, you're, you're experiencing something else. You, you understand what I'm saying? It's not a personal uh, power struggle of me against you. I could put you down and denigrate you. Put it. Makes me feel, makes me feel much more my achrayis. It makes me feel much more my my closest Hashem. That's another point. That's true confidence too. That that's also real confidence because yeah. confidence that's not based on that doesn't last. Because somebody else, threatened. it gets threatened. Somebody will be more strong, more confidence than you. If your confidence comes from the fact that you. If it's Tali totally Bedover of how strong you are, it's, somebody will be stronger. 
Just yesterday there was a meeting in Geneva in the United Nations Human Rights Commission, yesterday morning. And who condemned Israel again as apartheid state? Sudan, Syria, Qatar, Egypt and Iraq, and Iran. So the Jewish representative, Eli, everybody knows he's there for yeah, years, yeah. Eli he got up, he said, I don't understand this body. I just don't understand, first of all, he was addressing the president of the committee. He says, first of all, do you know how many people were killed in Syria this year? This is we mentioned before. How many people are being discriminated in Saudi Arabia? Women can't even drive there. How many people are being discriminated in Egypt in terms of how many people are being killed by fundamentalists? And you only choose Israel to condemn? The whole body here is sitting and condemning one Jewish state, one state because it's Jewish? That's what he said yesterday morning. He said, let me ask you something. Let me talk Algeria, 40 years ago. How many Jews were there? Where are your Jews today? Iran. Where are your Jews today? You had 300,000 Jews come here. Where are your Jews today? Why you condemn? You tell them, we are racist? You expelled all the Jews. That's what he said. They had nothing to... And you should have had the quietness. This was yesterday? Yesterday morning. You, you heard the... I heard it on the video. If you want to send it to you. Usually it's, an amazing, it's an amazing speech to watch. Where are your Jews? You're condemning us? You expelled all the Jews. And then you're condemning us? That's what he said. There was not one, you could have had a pin drop there. I think Shalmi state, a Shalish Mechtav, Shloisha Mechtav, and Shalach Yeshua. Shloisha Mechtav, and Shalach Yeshua. Haroitsa Leilach Yelach, Haroitsa Lahashlam Yashlam, Haroitsa Lilcham Yilcham. He gave three options. You could leave, nobody touches you. You could stay, nobody touches you. They have to pay taxes. And if you want to fight, you fight. And even when they fought, yeah. I can a man can have actually can divide with the kinder with zich. We tell him to tell him to stand there. So with the design schwerge for an amalchama in a story, for such a gefeit as I. It is so fitzich as I hint, and so cost say a sach carbonus to the bedan. So chicken settler there was will gains will gain in Gaza chickens eight settler. We fitish can amalchama as I. Yidn am nazeg gefeit. It's verstehst du man ist dann gegangen gehargit. Die was ein geblieben und haben Leuchem gewähnt und haben gewollt Hargen und haben gehargen. Das verstehen wir nicht, die gehen Hargen und gehen zu Hargen. Ein Gavl, Schütte, Serama, viele Amole können sich mit Geier sein, weißt du. Denn haben wir halt Amole können sich mit Geier sein, nicht da kein Sivu, Jammer.
Ich kann die geben, aber Jan Dollars wird gar nicht helfen. Also ich wirst allemal gefunden nach einer Excuse. Ich stehe kein Truppe für das. Bei Amalek. Bei Amalek. Nach Feier Ja. Ja, aber noch mal. Das ist auch das Sinn. Ich habe schon Jahre der Sinn, aber Hitler. Bei Hitler, aber nicht jeder. Das ist doch ein Hasidium aus Eulam. Das ist doch ein feiner Goyim. Die, was haben Feind, ja. Amalek, ja. Nicht jeder, ein Verkehr. Die, was haben Respekt für die Jeden. Die was haben Feind auf dem Eifen, ja. Ich das mit Saddam. Das ist ein anderes Art Sinn, ich stehe in Truppe von dem. Was gehst du da? Kannst tanzen, kannst tanzen auf dem Kopf tausendmal. Er hat nicht Feind, weil du tanzen auf dem Kopf. Er hat den Feind, weil du existierst. Kannst man, du existierst, fühlt er, dass du nicht äh, erkennen, dass du leben auf der Welt. Tumme der Herd Kedusha. Also der Herd Kedusha ist sehr, sehr stark. Und der Tiefe der Tumme, der Tiefe der Sinne zu Kedusha, was er macht, er mit Schuge. So macht er mit Schuge. Wo er das Kedusha macht, das er mit Schuge. Dafür das Ausraten von der Welt. Ich fühle ein kleines Kind. Er geht um das Ammardechai. Was ist Ammardechai? Ich fühle ein kleines Kind, hat das alle Töcke für Mardechai. Aber er gewinnt bei Mama das Sinn. Ein Mensch wird kommen nicht glauben. Sex in der Tür. 
Das ist eine richtige Idee, das ist eine andere Idee, wie Chakira, aber keine Idee. Das ist eine richtige Idee. Das ist eine schöne Sache auf dem Minder. Das ist eine schöne Sache. Das ist eine schöne Sache. Das ist eine schöne Sache. Das ist eine schöne Nein, du verstehst nicht. Das Sefer Ikrim sagt das befehlisch. Man darf sich nicht dingen. Das ist ein Sefer Ikrim von der Biosef Alba. Schreibt er, was ist ein Munde? Ein Munde meint, dass man weiß, dass es bewahrt ist, aber man versteht nicht die Platte. Das ist eine Nicht am Achleikes, sie ist am Mitzvah-Choike sein. Alle halten... Ja, das sagt ich. Was sagt er? Was sagt er? Was sagt er? Was sagt er? Also ein Munde ist nicht kein Sache, was man darf tun, sondern ziehen es von einem Aber das ist auch ein Psyche, das ist nicht ein Psyche. Das ist auch ein Psyche, aber ich sehe, das ist das Maßbild. Es steht, jeden seine Maminen, Bnei Maminen. Das ist nicht mit seiner Seele Sache, mit seiner Pohle. Das ist mit seiner Psyche von einem Jüdischen. Das ist nicht ein Psyche. Der Mitzvah kann sein, to internalize it, zu machen, das ist ein Heilig von sich. Aber der Etzim, das ist ein anderer Munde, aber wegen dem reden nicht die Scheine. Wenn sie sagen, der Mund meiden sie knowledge with certainty, absolute, a thousand percent Idee, das ist ein Mund. Auf Idee darf man sagen, tausend Prozent. Wie soll ich sagen, auf Idee tausend Prozent? If I know it, darf ich noch additional Sachen sagen? Nein, man darf, ja, weil ein Mensch hat das Wort in Lein, dann kann er nicht mehr zu abschlagen, das Wort. Das hält sich in Idee. Das hat du kein Trauma mehr. Okay, das ist mein tausend Prozent Idee. Das ist mein. Heitsch, wie du willst. Ja. Du bist gerecht, aber jetzt meint der Wort der Mund etwas hecher. Das bist du gerecht. In der Scheune? In der Mitte? Nein, auch die Nister. Nister ist Megala der Nikolaus, nicht zwei Teures. Aber Nikolaus hat mir nur deine Kurde, aber da wissen wir sicher. Aber hebt dann einen Teures an Nister, sagt man. Also da tiefen die Dinge in der Mund. Und der Rieber ist es nicht die Idee, weil sie hat nicht die Idee. Das ist auch nicht so. Das Wenn du nicht gefunden hast, in den Gemara, seine Schamme, jeder hat eine Nefeschelle, Kissa, Chelle, Kalle, Kamin, Mamma. Steht nicht in Gemara. Steht nicht in Mensch. Steht in Tanja. 
that in Sifrei Kabbalah, Kisveri Zadeh, Shizchachim HaShallah. In Pasuk Reva Yipach Ba'ap of Nishmas Chayim. Tzach the Ramban, Ramban as Hanefeich, Mitoich Hanefeich. Tzach the Ramban. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.